Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center and you can also find this link in the show notes. Today we will talk about social inequality as a business risk and we will look at one particular case, a very important one, and that is India. My guest today is Ashok Amodi. Professor Modi is the Charles and Mary Robertson Visiting Professor in International Economic Policy at Princeton University, more specifically at the School of Public and International Affairs. He is the author of various books. One is on the Euro tragedy, as it's called, a drama in nine acts. That's not what we're going to talk about today. We will talk about another book that was just published this year, and the title of that book is India is Broken, A People Betrayed Independence to Today. It was published this year by Stanford University Press. Professor Modi was also previously a deputy director at the IMF, at the Funds Research and European Departments. He has worked at the World Bank, at AT&T Bell Laboratories, and at the Center for Development Studies, Trivandrum. He has been a visiting professor at the University of Pennsylvania, at the Wharton School, prestigious Wharton School, and he is a non-resident fellow at the Center for Financial Studies in Frankfurt. He received his PhD in economics from Boston University. So he has a broad pedigree both in academia, but also in the practitioner field of international relations. So we're very, very happy to have you here, Professor Modi. Thank you, Matthias. Thank you for having me. So the title of your book is, I would say, quite dramatic. India is broken, a people betrayed, and not just now, but also according to the subtitle of your book, From Independence to Today. What makes you come to such a drastic, one could say, conclusion? So there are three parallel themes that run through my book. The first is the failure of the Indian economy to absorb people in productive and dignified professions for the last 75 years. This is the jobs shortage, which has become acute and in my view at a crisis level. The second related theme is that India has failed to provide what I call public goods. Education, health, working cities, judicial system that works for everyone in a fair and equ equitable way and more recently a very rampant degradation of the environment. These are not only the lived reality of people today but it is setting up problems that could become very severe in the future. And underlying all of this is the third most important theme that there has been a breakdown of social norms and public accountability. There is a sense 
that you can get away with cheating and corruption and increasingly crime has infiltrated politics and this has torn the moral fabric of the country at a working level which means that public policy today is not necessarily responsive to the people so these three things jobs public goods and a breakdown of norms and accountability and you basically are saying this is something that has been this way in one way or another since india became independent correct what i'm saying is that history matters so as i say in the preface of my book this is a history to inform the present and in 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 academic language we call it path dependence that if you go down a certain path then things happen and they become very hard to reverse so it was not like this right at the start but certain events pushed india in this way and then it became always easier to make the wrong rather than the right choice and so the effects have accumulated over time for our listeners most of which will probably have a general idea of india and its development but will not likely be experts what were some of these moments that shaped the history of the country according to your definition for the worse what were some of these pivotal moments so pivotal moment number 1 was during the prime ministership of uh, our first prime minister jawaharlal nehru he was a man of great distinction a scholar a humanist very ethically uh, bound a great uh, respecter of democratic institutions but in terms of the economics he followed what he himself called the temples of modern india strategy which meant that he built large factories and emphasized what economists call a capital intensive mode of economic development which meant that jobs were scarce and over his 17 year period the job scarcity grew he also left behind an india where corruption had become had reached a sort of critical point and when mrs gandhi who is his daughter indira gandhi became prime minister she had a choice she had a choice of overcoming the deficits that nehru had left behind on jobs on public goods on uh, the norms but she took it the wrong way she was a leader who was extremely conscious of her own power and wanted to maintain it at all costs and the result was that sometime during her period again a period of 18 years the norms changed in what i believe are an irre- in an irreversible way mrs gandhi is pivotal to my story because once she set the norms it became in everyone's interest to follow those norms so just to conclude this there, there is sort of a biblical a, a variation of a biblical saying which is cheat unto others before they cheat unto you so that becomes then the psychology under which everyone operates so you mentioned the country's two first leaders nero and then gandhi what happened then what happened then is that some of the 
that the changes that occurred after Mrs. Gandhi were essentially market-oriented changes. Now, let me be clear. Although I consider myself a social democrat in the European sense of the term, I believe that the Indian economy had been set up in a way that where there were too many controls over production and imports. And clearly India needed a liberalization, an important liberalization. And that liberalization happened, especially starting about 91. And it had beneficial effects. To be clear, I am not critical of liberalization. What I am critical of is that at this point in time, there was another moment to revive the supply and delivery of public goods. Education had been lagging behind, health had been lagging behind, the judicial system was breaking down, and environmental damage was becoming rampant. There was none of this that was priority for the governments that were liberalizing. They've basically decided that the magic of the market is going to solve India's development problems. And the result was not just that the magic did not work because it cannot work unless there is basic human capital and a functioning judicial system. It became an unregulated capitalism. An unregulated capitalism where some people became extraordinarily rich and for the vast bulk, yes, there was some progress, there was some trickle down, but jobs remained scarce, education and health remained poor, and the norms kept deteriorating. So basically you're saying that the country went from maybe too much regulation also of, of the business sector to too little? I would say that that is certainly the case. There was too little regulation on two fronts. One in the financial sector, which became the driving force of the development process. That's historically a very improper way for development. As uh, the very famous... University of Cambridge economist uh, John Robinson once says, finance follows growth. Finance plays a supporting role. In India, finance became the main driver of the high GDP growth rates. There was a financial bubble that emerged. And the second was the complete disregard of the environment. Even today, there are very few people who show any interest in environmental protection. There is this very wrong-headed view that we need to develop and therefore we cannot afford to think too much about the environment. That is wrong for many reasons, including the fact that by the late 1990s, the climate crisis was already bearing down on India. And the notion that somehow India is entitled to environmental damage is from a very purely short-sighted self-interest, it is completely wrong. So we have this phase which huge inequalities emerge because those who are privileged and the elite 
they begin to live first world lives. They are the kind of people that international observers like yourself will meet when you go to India. They in fact live better than first world lives because they have cooks and drivers which, which even some of the richest uh, westerners cannot afford. And, and they speak an international language, they travel, they go to the shop in Milan and Singapore, they go for holidays to Switzerland. And yes, life is good for them. They buy Lamborghinis and they dress in the finest Italian and French fashions. You can get a $400 Adidas shoe in, in a mall in, in Delhi. Yes, but then you talk to the person who is not able to afford a table fan in 44 degrees temperature in Delhi. And the, the numbers of such people is vastly greater than the numbers who are shopping in Milan and Singapore. Now, I get the topic of, of inequality. Now, one could say that is the case in many places, right? And I, I'm not condoning that. I'm not saying that it's normatively a good thing. But if you go to Latin America, for example, where I have been quite a number of times, where I've lived actually, I would argue it's exactly the same. High inequality in most places, abysmal poverty on, on the one side, but also extreme richness on the other. Even countries such as China, different system, you have extremely rich people, but still you have a lot of very, very poor people. So is that not maybe just a necessary byproduct of emerging economies? Okay, you've asked a very important and very interestingly phrased question. So let me just step back a minute. Latin America, East Asia, completely different. India is very much like Latin America. So your analogy there works, especially with regard to Brazil. You have the favelas and the WhatsApp. You have the e-commerce and the open sewers. Okay, that's Brazil, that's India. The Indian inequalities are reaching Brazilian levels. Brazil is a country that is much more richly endowed with natural resources, therefore is a richer country, has also a longer history of independence. But less known is the fact that since about 2011, the Brazilian economy has basically not grown. Per capita income in Brazil today is the same as it was about a decade ago. Brazil, just to inject a slightly humorous note, I think sometime in November 2009, the uh, economist had a cover which said, Brazil takes off. And the cover had a photograph of Christ the Redeemer ascending into the sky like a rocket. Three years later, Brazil had riots and the economist's cover was, has Brazil blown it? That analogy is worth reflecting when we think about India today. Again, uh, last year, the economist had a cover, India's moment. The, the, the reason I like the economist is that it makes bold and unambiguous predictions which come almost exactly wrong. So it's very reliable. <laughs> and I, I suspect that something similar could happen in the Indian case. China is very different. Yes, inequalities, I agree. But China has invested huge amounts in human capital development. 
the Chinese education health systems are almost world class. Okay, now China has lots of problems, but on the basics of development, on human capital, they have done a fantastic job. Plus, one further advantage over India female labor force participation is much higher in China than it ever was in India and India has fallen. So the the importance of women and this I'm sorry I'm speaking so long but let me just emphasize the importance of women because it's a recurring it's a, a running theme in my book. Women's workforce participation has been a central feature of economic development along with human capital since the Industrial Revolution 250 years ago. Every nation that has made progress since the late 18th century has done two things. It's educated its children and it's brought more women into the workforce. India has failed on both scores abysmally. You mentioned that and you talked about human capital in, in the context of China investing in education, investing in the healthcare system and you say that India has failed to do so. Now, India is a democracy and has been one since its inception, maybe an imperfect one, but it has been a democracy throughout, maybe with you know a couple of years in the 70s, I think when there was a state of emergency, but it has been a democracy for decades. And in fact, it's often referred to as the largest democracy in the world. Now it's also the largest country or the most populous one. In a democracy, at least in theory, the government is there to serve the needs of the people. So that's the essence of democracy. Why has or why have subsequent governments then failed so much at providing these basic building blocks for democratic and social development in India? Again, a very central question. So the phrase in the subtitle of my book, A People Betrayed, is very much about the betrayal of democracy. James Madison in the Federalist Papers wrote about this. He says, when there is a representative democracy, there are certain structures of the government which will not be responsive to the people and will betray the people. And Subsequently, Robert Dahl, who is one of the great political theorists of uh, the last century, said there are three possibilities. One is when an elite becomes powerful. The elite will hijack the process of democracy for its own purposes. This is common everywhere. This is common in the United States in particular, more most recently, where the population, the trickle-down of material benefits to the population goes away and then at the same time if there is a broader mob mentality that can be can be harnessed by charismatic leaders then the material interests of the vast majority can remain depreciated for a very long time. In the Indian context the mob part came much later But the charismatic politicians like Jawaharlal Nehru and Indira Gandhi, they could win votes without delivering material progress. They were beloved leaders. 
and so they were able to disregard the democratic process in this more fundamental sense. I instinctively am very cautious about calling an India a democracy. India was a, never a liberal democracy. The rights of people always remained compromised. India was what the Swedish think tank VDEM calls an electoral democracy. It held elections, but it did not necessarily give people the rights to exercise their options and create opportunities. And more recently, VDEM since 2017 very specifically says India is now an electoral autocracy. And you can see that in so many different ways. This is the latest phase since 2017. Now, I find this very interesting. And as I said, I've been going to India quite a number of times recently since I took over responsibility for the Indo-German Center here at uh, Frankfurt School. And I think... If I hear you talk, a lot of people in India, especially people from the business and the political elite, would be very strongly opposed to your views. And they might say something like, maybe this was true in the past, but it has certainly changed since 2015 when the uh, current prime minister took over. Things are now very different. Uh, we have a different development path and so on and so forth. But you say, well, basically the elites have not changed? Is that what you're saying? It's the same people who are still benefiting uh, the most at the expense of the general population? Okay, so I, I'll make three comments. This is a very good conversation. Number one, on the core of human development, there has been virtually no change. Yes, there have been initiatives, but the quality of education remains poor, the quality of health care remains poor. I don't think this is even your, even the elite friends that you speak with will contest that. The judicial system is more broken today than it ever was. Let me give you one statistic that will register with you and your audience. 75% of India's prison population is under trial. In other words, these are people who are waiting for trial. They are in prison, but they have not been convicted of anything. Sometimes they are in prison for one year, three years, five years. Many of them spend more time in prison than they would have if they had been convicted of the crime they are alleged to have committed. And the failure of the judicial system runs m much deeper than that. And the environmental damage has become much more rampant. The cities are more broken than they were before. Take a city like Bangalore. It's a city probably you have visited many times. Bangalore had three or four hundred lakes, even as late as when I was growing up. Those lakes have disappeared. Those lakes have disappeared because there's been construction on them. And the rich Indians live in these very glamorous apartments. 
But what does that mean? That means that the water bodies that used to absorb the water when there was a rainfall no longer do so. And a minor rainfall can create a flood in Bangalore. So Bangalore has Infosys which has got a campus that looks like it might be in California. And then you step out of the Infosys campus and you, you, you are in a city that gets flooded even with there is small rain. There was, there was a rain recently that caused rampant damage. So on the core development measures by which I measure human capital, judicial system, environment, cities, I will make an assertion that there has been almost no change. Now, the change that has occurred, which is what elite Indians are most proud of, is one, there are more roads, there are more uh, railway tracks, and there is what is being called digital infrastructure. Yes, roads are important, railway track is important, you may have heard recently that there was a very gruesome rail accident. What is happening, that rail accident is a metaphor for a development process that emphasizes the bright and shiny, but it neglects everything else that is in the shadows. And development is all about the shadows, the maintenance, the cleanliness, the people getting jobs. You ask the people next time that you uh, encountered this very bullishness, what is happening to jobs? Today, I'll give you one last statistic and then, then let you ask a question. In 2019, the railways, Indian railways advertised 35,000 jobs. 12 and a half million people applied for those jobs. 12 and a half million people, which means that eventually one out of 350 people would get a job. We are now in 2023, four years later, the railway has not made any job offer. Or even of the 35,000 it had promised. Last year, the students and applicants went on a rampage. They burnt railway wagons and rail tracks. So the jobs problem is more acute than ever before. I don't care what the digital infrastructure does to accelerate uh, payments between people. I'm asking, is the lived reality of people, are we seeing a noticeable difference in that? Now, I get your point that you say, you know, development is not about the shiny stuff, but it's now about the underlying basic infrastructure. Again, also to push back a little bit and to get into a discussion, one could also say that, well, you know, that's what politicians love all over the world, right? Politicians in most parts of the world love shiny projects where they can cut ribbons and their beautiful bridges and towers and, and shiny stuff. And they don't really care about the boring, mundane stuff, such as, you know, where the garbage goes and all the kind of stuff. Correct. So maybe I, I'm just putting that out there. That can also yes. be a universal problem. On the other hand, I know, for example, that at least the current government claims that a very unglamorous but important issue 
such as open defecation, for example, which uh, was a huge issue, according to the government, has been resolved. Now, I don't know if that is true, but at least one could say that they have tackled a topic that is not very shiny, <laughs> to put it that way, but still fundamentally important, of course, especially for the poorest of the poor in the population. Is that just an, uh, an I, exception? I, I, or? I, no, I agree with uh, what you just said. The open defecation was a very severe problem and this government has taken a significant initiative in that regard. This government always overstates its achievements. Nevertheless, the achievements are not to be trivialized at all. They are important achievements and they are worthy achievements. No problem. Okay, now step back a minute. Step back a minute because what is our goal? Our goal is not just to eliminate open defecation. Our goal is to give people a healthier life. We want better nutrition. We want better health care. And so open defecation has to be seen in the context of a broader development in nutrition and health. It's not an isolated thing by itself. And look at, look at the measures of stunting. Even today, 32% of Indian kids under the age of five are stunted, which is the widely used metric for malnutrition. On that, the progress has been minimal. Look at anemia amongst women of all age groups, but particularly childbearing women. It has increased over time. So, Those are statistics that even in the case of the toilets, it is not shiny, but it is visible. The, the distinction has to be made between the visible and the invisible. The toilets are visible. They, they are something you can demonstrate to the world that I have done something. Here, look at this. I have a toilet. I'm not even trying to minimize this achievement A lot of reporters will tell you those toilets don't have water, they have all kinds of other problems. Let me, let me stipulate that those problems will be resolved over time. But there is the whole invisible structure that provides a broader nutritional and health outcome. And on those measures, the progress is slow, sometimes has even been reversed. A bold prediction the world in 10 years. We have one fixed segment in our podcast, and that's what we call a bold prediction, the world in 10 years. And we know that predictions are always very, very difficult, but we still ask all our guests to give it a shot. So my question to you would be, when we talk about inequality in India, where do you think we will be in 10 years from now? What will the situation be? Oh, I, I think that at this rate we are going, India will be as unequal as it is today. Your, your, your comparison with Latin America was spot on. I mean, look at Brazil. Brazil, once Brazil became unequal about 30, 40, 50 years ago, the inequality is self-perpetuating because the elite make sure that they live in gated communities. They have no interest in public health and education that I'm talking about. They send their kids abroad. I was just reading yesterday that 6,500 Indian millionaires have recently taken citizenship in Dubai 
and Singapore. I had a student last semester do a project where she says that a lot of Indians are buying investment visas and coming to the United States, going to the UK. The rich are exiting India in the sense that their relationship with India is minimal, yet they are using the Indian resources for their own enhancing their own riches. Where I'm, in fact, if I was looking ahead, where I am most worried about is on the climate crisis. There's no attention being paid to the climate crisis. There's a lot of emphasis on net zero, getting the emissions down. But the climate crisis is here. Droughts are here. Coastal erosion is here. Melting glaciers are here. The cyclones patterns are changing. That's all happening. There's a cyclone landing in, in on the West Coast even as we speak. This was not a phenomenon that was known even 20 years ago. So we are dealing with an imminent ecological crisis. So if they combine the inequality and the ecological crisis, you know, I think those two are features that India is going to have to deal with in a very aggressive way. Mm. Otherwise, nothing will change. Good. A quite gloomy prediction, of course, from you for India in, in 10 years. Now, let's focus a little bit on the role of business because our podcast is called Business Diplomacy today. So we look at global issues through the lens of business or with a look towards business. You mentioned um, that rich people, business owners among them, benefit a lot from social inequality also because they live a comfortable life, they can afford many servants and so on and so forth. Can business also play a role in helping to solve some of the issues that you have mentioned and described? Business should not be called on to take on the role of public policy. Yes, what I would hope is that business is more socially responsible, that to the extent that they have their profit objectives, that they also recognize that public policy uh, requires broader goals and they do not impede those broader goals. But I would not expect businesses to say, you know, in the next 10 years, India should invest so many billion euros in education or expand the healthcare sector by such and such scale or improve the judicial system. I don't think that's business's responsibility. I think this has to come from a democratic process within the country and that the reason for my pessimism is that the essential public accountability has gone. And the reason I'm pessimistic is I, I call this a catch-22. Who, who will impose the accountability? The unaccountable politicians themselves have to impose it on themselves. And that's where the catch-22 comes in. It is in no one's interest to impose accountability on yourself. So still, you, you have, a, um, as you said yourself, a rather pessimistic assessment and also outlook on the country. Still, there must be, I guess, an attempt to resolve the situation for the better. So in your opinion, what needs to be done? What would have to happen for India to become better along those lines, become better in terms of removing or diminishing social inequality? 
the most important thing. So uh, I, I'm going to answer your question. It's a very important question. What I reject is a solution which often elite Indians and their counterparts abroad are tempted by, which is authoritarianism. There's a very common instinct at, at, at when we reach the discussion at this point, a lot of people will agree with me. And then they will say, oh yeah, but we need a much more authoritarian rule. Because India cannot be sorted out uh, except by somebody who is a strong man or a strong woman. And uh, therefore, we need an authoritarian government. And the more sophisticated will say, well, we need an authoritarian transition, maybe 10 years. And India is then on a flying start. And then we can come back to democracy. Let me just put it simply. That's bullshit. Okay? There is no historical record of that happening. There are three or four countries in the world, the China, South Korea, Taiwan, which have used an authoritarian transition extremely well. But then you have Uganda, Idi Amin, and Mobutu in Congo. And the, the likelihood that a strong man or strong woman will completely destroy the nation is even worse than this idea that somehow India will magically transform into an authoritarian government. Therefore, it must be the case that India becomes more democratic than it is. This comes back to your previous question. Why has democracy not worked? And the reason democracy has not worked is that the people who rule and the people who are ruled, the distance between them has increased. And what I'm saying at the end of my book is that we need to go back to a more local form of democracy where cities, where groups of rural areas, villages, they have much more authority over their governance. Why? Because then the contact between the officials and the people is much closer. And there is the ability to create greater accountability. And we have lots of such uh, uh, examples around the world, but we also have it in India. The state of Kerala has this much more decentralized form of government, and we see there better education, better health outcomes. We see a greater respect for the environment. We see that people raise their voice, sometimes effectively, against rampant environmental damage. We don't see that in the same way in other parts of India. Therefore, my hope would be India will become more like the Kerala that I see as a model. Now, I have to say that Kerala itself has got problems and does not always follow its own model. But to the extent that we have a model, that is where India must go. Interesting assessment. So more democracy rather than less. And I have to say I fully agree with that. I think that's a, a very good thing to say. More decentralization and Obviously, we've been talking about India as if it were one homogeneous entity, but that is, of course, not true, especially such a large and diverse country. There are huge differences culturally, economically, politically between the states. And you mentioned Kerala as one example that you think is promising. So very interesting. Obviously, in our episodes, we can never 
discuss, address all the issues that are interesting. So another segment that we have in our podcast is what we call Executive Briefing, what you should read now. In order to give our listeners uh, some food for thought, some recommendations on readings, which could be articles, books, anything like that, if they want to dive in a bit deeper on what we've been discussing here today. And before I let you make a recommendation, I will make one. And that is obviously your own book, which I think everyone should have a close look at. And we will make sure that we put the title in the show notes of this episode. So if you haven't been able to write it down now, don't worry, you'll find the title in the show notes of this episode. But maybe you have something more to add. Okay, so well, I will add two things. One is a book. The book is by young journalist named Kavita Ayer. And the title of the book is Landscapes of Loss. It's a beautiful book about the western region of Maratwada, which is a traditionally a dry area and is right now, even as we speak, for the last 10-15 years being assaulted by the climate crisis successive years of drought followed by excessive rainfall which also destroys the crops it is a living record of the climate crisis as it is happening today in India it's beautifully written well reported she has reported it over several years and she has lived there she she knows the people and it's like a second home to her the book is landscapes of loss her last name is ayer kavita ayer now she and other young indian journalists have become part of what india calls digi media so the mainstream media has basically decided it does not want to deal with the kinds of problems that you and I have been talking about or certainly that I emphasize in my book. Journalists who interview me tell me we would love to write what you are saying. We see the reality that you are describing but uh, we just cannot publish this stuff. So that stuff all comes out in the digi media. And the three that are most important are The Wire, Scroll, Scroll is my, perhaps for me, even though The Wire is better known, Scroll is a very, very high quality paper. The editor, Naresh Fernandez, is a, is a veteran journalist. And the last is Article 14, which is also where Kavita Ayer writes. The editor there again is a very distinguished person. They report in-depth stories about what real India is. You want to hear about India? Read these papers. Because they will tell you the lived reality of people, all the problems that I'm describing to you today. They're all there on a daily basis in these newspapers. Thank you very much. And we'll make sure that we put both the book and the three outlets, the media outlets that you mentioned, in the show notes so that people can find them easily there. Professor Modi, we've come to the end of this episode, which was very, very insightful, provided different perspective on India, different from maybe the one that uh, most people will read in the news uh, most of the time. So I think this was very, very interesting. Thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Matthias. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you to have me. 
This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.